The year is 1997. It's a cold February morning in the state of Virginia, and the breakfast crowd is thinning out at a diner. The smell of a permanently brewing coffee pot and pancakes is enough to make mouths water. Travelers drift in and out, most paying their bills once the last bite is gone. In amongst this flow sits one woman who's in no rush to move on. Sue Billig is here for answers to a question that has dominated her life for 23 years now. Where is her daughter, Amy? Amy went out to meet her dad back in March 1974 and hasn't been seen since. Sue has dedicated her life to finding out what happened to her eldest daughter. Amy had been such a happy teenager, part of what Sue thought was the perfect family. She and her husband, Ned, couldn't conceive of a world where their daughter chose to walk away from that life, from her family. The alternatives, though, are far darker. Could someone have taken her and held her against her will all these years? Worse still, the version Sue fears the most is the possibility that Amy is no longer alive. There have been times over the years, too many to count, when detectives called Sue to tell her a young woman's body had been found. Every time, she'd been petrified that it was her Amy. When each one was confirmed as someone else's child, it was a peculiar mix of relief that there was still hope, but also disappointment that she still didn't have the answers she craved. Today is different, though. She has been brought here by a team of British documentary producers working on an episode about Amy's disappearance. Thanks to a tip from Detective Jack Calvar of the Miami Police Department, they've tracked down the girlfriend of a man who has been a constant in Sue's life since the year after Amy vanished. Paul Branch was an enforcer for the Pagan Biker Gang, a group that has long been linked to Amy's disappearance. Branch made various claims since 1975 that he could help Sue find her daughter, that he knew where she was and who she was with. None of them led to Amy's return, and now Branch has died, three months earlier, in December 1996. But his girlfriend has shared a shocking revelation. Branch, it seems, had more to say about Amy's disappearance than he previously shared. It's his deathbed confession that Sue has come to hear today, retold by the woman who was with Branch at the end. One of the producers gnaws at a car that's pulled up outside. Branch's girlfriend has arrived. She gets out of her car to stretch her legs, but she won't speak to them in a public place. Her name is not shared in any of the accounts that follow. In a book that Sue later publishes, she'll refer to the woman only as Tootsie. Sue pegs her as a middle-aged, somewhere in her late 40s or early 50s, with long curling hair and a wide, friendly face that contrasts with the butt of a .357 Magnum that pokes out from under her belt. Bikers are fiercely loyal to their gangs and notoriously intolerant of anyone who breaks rank. Tootsie is understandably worried about any repercussions from speaking out. But something about Sue's plight has clearly touched her enough to meet. Sue and the producers get into their own car, following Tootsie back to the trailer she used to share with Branch. It's at the end of a dirt road peppered with potholes. The trailer itself is an island in a sea of debris, rusting car parts and an old pickup truck on blocks. Inside isn't much better, 
overflowing ashtrays, layers of dust and grime coating every surface. Producers set up cameras beside a small dining table and Tootsie begins to talk. She tells them what Brant shared right before he died, that Amy hadn't chosen to disappear, that she wasn't ever coming home. According to Tootsie, Branch told her Amy had been dead for decades. Even though it's heartbreaking news, this could be the closure that Sue has waited years for. But is the account of Amy's final hours genuine? For years, Branch had been lurking around the edges of Sue's crusade to uncover the truth. His claims that he had seen Amy and knew people who could find her hadn't yielded results and had been nothing but a source of frustration for Sue. Maybe, just maybe, having nothing left to lose, he finally told the truth. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Paul Branch, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying, about a 17-year-old girl who vanished in broad daylight, a mystery stretching back almost five decades, the mother who devoted her life to finding the truth about what happened to her daughter, the intimidating wall of silence from the biker community many suspect of being involved, and an enforcer from the notorious pagan gang who claims to hold the key to it all. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It's March 5th, 1974, less than a year since troops were pulled out of Vietnam. People still view their political leaders with a healthy dose of cynicism following the Watergate scandal in 1972. Despite the turmoil of the past few years, Coconut Grove, Miami still has a relatively innocent feel to it. Serious crimes like murder are rare. The Billig family fell in love with the place during a trip Sue made in 1968 and they packed up and left New York that same year. Ned runs an art gallery, and Sue has built a reputation as an interior designer. 
They have two children. Amy, the oldest, is something of a miracle. Sue endured five miscarriages over 10 years before she and Ned were finally blessed with a child. Their son Josh was born a year later, and the Billigs have been living the American dream ever since. Today, though, that dream is about to be shattered. 250 miles to the north, an event known as Bike Week is due to start in Daytona Beach. Bikers from all over America will attend. Hundreds have roared up from the Florida Keys on their Harleys. They're heard long before they're seen, with engines that rumble like distant thunder. Some are gang members, and it's common for them to have a rap sheet. Locals keep their distance, pick a fight with one biker, and there's a good chance a dozen more will join in. Hordes of leather-clad riders swarm the streets, sometimes in groups of 50 or more. Most belong to one of two gangs, the Pagans or the Outlaws. Each has their colors, a modern-day coat of arms. The Outlaws have a white skull on the back of their jackets, eyes glowing red. The Pagan's badge is a Norse fire god. Amongst the many Pagans who blast through Coconut Grove is Paul Branch. Little is known of him prior to this fateful trip, not his age or where he comes from. Branch is an imposing figure, He stands six feet, two inches, with reddish hair and a short beard. Both arms are a roadmap of tattoos, some he doesn't even remember getting. Amongst the colorful collage are patches of scarred skin, where he has burned off tattoos he no longer wants, with battery acid. The Billigs didn't witness this mass migration of bikers. For them, it was just an ordinary day. Amy had been out late at a friend's house the previous night, returning a little after 3 a.m. Even though she was late for breakfast, Sue recalls her looking as fresh as if she'd just had a good night's sleep. They exchange a few terse words about her staying out so late on a school night, but it's not a full-blown argument. 17-year-old Amy has a busy life. She spends a lot of her time playing or listening to music, writing poetry and songs of her own, with dreams of being the next Joni Mitchell. She volunteers at a local marine center, looking after their dolphins. And when she graduates from high school, she plans to spend the summer in New York with a friend who acts on Broadway. That morning, Amy hurries out to school, calling over her shoulder to her mom that she loves her. Sue replies that she loves her too, not knowing it will be the last words she ever says to her daughter. Later that day, Sue heads to Tahiti Beach to meet a friend for lunch. 10 minutes later, Amy drops by the empty house. She has lunch plans of her own, but no money to make them happen. She calls her dad asking to borrow a few dollars. Ned is happy to oblige, but tells her she'll need to come and meet him at the gallery to collect it. It's only a mile along streets that Amy has walked countless times before. It shouldn't take her more than 15 minutes. But when she doesn't show, Ned assumes she doesn't need the cash after all. Amy has earned a high degree of trust from her parents. She works hard at school and always lets them know where she is, so they don't start to worry until dinner time. It's an unwritten family rule. You never miss a meal without checking in. Around eight that evening, Ned calls Mike Gonzalez, a friend and detective in the Miami PD. Gonzalez comes to their home, questioning both parents and Amy's 16-year-old brother, Josh. 
He asks whether there's a chance Amy could have just run away. Sue says absolutely not. We're the kind of family other kids run too, she reiterates. Gonzalez tells them not to panic. 99% of kids who go missing turn up within 24 hours. But by six the next morning, Sue can't take it any longer. She calls Gonzalez again, crying, saying that her daughter is still missing. Despite the family connection with Gonzalez, Miami PD consider Amy a possible runaway, not a high priority. Sue and Ned enlist the help of neighbors and friends. They patrol the streets looking for any sign of their daughter. Sue has flyers printed with her daughter's picture on them that volunteers place on telephone poles. They even search the local wooded areas. Much to the Billig's frustration, it isn't until five days after the disappearance that the story makes the local papers. When it does, it's buried on page six. Some of Amy's fellow musicians hold a concert to raise money for a reward for information. The local media report that authorities now think she may have been kidnapped, although it's unclear what put their investigation on that path. Sue and Ned hope and pray that the $1,000 reward they can now offer will provide the jumpstart the case needs. The Billigs enlist the help of a private investigator, Frank Rubino, a former Secret Service agent. Sue even contacts the FBI, but without anything concrete to corroborate the kidnapping theory, it's left to local police to continue the search. Every day feels like an eternity to Ned and Sue, but it's not long before they get their first glimmer of hope. On March 16th, a family friend named Toby answers the phone at the Billig's house. Hello, Mr. Billig? The voice on the other end of the line is female. Who's calling, please? Toby asks. There are a few seconds of hesitation, as if not wanting to give a name. Susan Johnson, the caller says finally, but admits it's not her real name in the next breath. Susan says she's seen Amy's mom putting up posters. She's calling because a friend of hers was in Daytona and saw a girl matching Amy's description. She tells Toby that Amy and another girl are being held against their will by a gang of bikers called the Outlaws. She swears to Toby that she's 100% positive this is the girl they're looking for. The woman agrees to call back and speak to Ned. The phone rings an hour later. Ned listens to her story, then asks her if she'll speak to Mike Gonzalez. She agrees, and when Officer Gonzalez speaks to Ned later that day, they have a location for the biker camp. Titusville, 200 miles to the north. Gonzalez relays it to local PD, and the family settle in for yet another agonizing wait. Sadly, the lead Peter's out. The outlaws have moved on, leaving no clue as to their next destination. The connection resurfaces days later, though, when a man called David Hemming turns up at Sue's door. He has found a camera with Amy's name on it by an off-ramp on the Florida Turnpike that leads to the town of Wildwood. The spot where he finds it is on a route that the biker gangs are known to take. It's just a cheap plastic camera, and only four pictures have been taken. But just maybe there's a clear shot of Amy's abductor. Had Amy dropped it on purpose in the hope someone would find it? What happens next seems hard to believe, 
given the seriousness of the situation. But the only person with a car to drive and get the images developed is the teenage brother of a family friend. And the kid is pulled over for making an illegal turn and arrested. He calls Sue an hour later. She arranges for him to be bailed out, anxious to see what the pictures might reveal. But it's not great news. Three of the four images have been overexposed. It's not clear if it's the photo lab's fault or because the camera was outside for so long. The fourth image only shows vines growing up a wall with a white pickup truck in the background. It's a crushing blow, with both Sue and Ned having convinced themselves the photos would be the first step on the road to finding Amy. In amongst the disappointment though, help comes from an unexpected direction. The bail bondsman Sue used to get her friend's brother out of jail is a man called Joe Klein. He asks for a word with Sue and makes a surprising offer. Klein tells Sue he has done regular work for the outlaw gang, who use his services to bail their members out when things have gotten too rowdy. He promises to have a word with his contacts in the gang, saying they owe him, and that he'll arrange for someone to come and speak to her the next day. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. With the buzz of friends around the house and media outside, Sue busies herself with organizing more searches and completely forgets about Joe Klein's offer. Until, that is, two bikers show up on her doorstep. One of them, a huge 300-pound man by the name of Sid Fast, pulls no punches when Sue asks if a member of the gang could have taken Amy. Bikers take chicks all the time, he tells her. Sometimes they tie him to the bike. We get chicks all sorts of ways. Usually they come of their own accord, or they come to a party and we keep them doped up. The bikers seem genuine in their desire to help, though, as a favor to Klein. Fast tells Sue that they'll have a word with the president of the outlaws, a man known as Big Jim, and see if one of their own has Amy. Sue and Ned don't have time to dwell on what might come of the offer. Because a friend of the family, Ann Friedman, also a local reporter, runs a story the following day about the possible connection to the outlaws. The result is a seemingly never-ending stream of phone calls to the Billig house. Over 50 calls come in from psychics claiming to have a connection to Amy. One even says she can definitely pinpoint Amy's location. If Sue can give him $5,000. It's not until two days later that Sue finally gets the call she's been hoping for. The voice on the end of the line belongs to Joe Klein. The bail bondsman cuts to the chase. She's in Venice Beach, he says, 
referring to the Florida location, not the one in Los Angeles. Are you sure? Sue asks, confused as to how Amy could have ended up there. It's on the other side of the state. Big Jim says she drove out there with a biker, Joe replies. But now she's on her own. Sue wastes no time. Her first call is to the Venice Beach police, who promised to have officers keep an eye out for Amy. Her second is to Ned's sister, who lives near there. The excitement is short-lived, though. With no sign of Amy anywhere around Venice Beach, the Billigs are forced to accept that the tip-off from the outlaws is at best old news, or at worst, false information designed to send them looking in the wrong direction. The only positive thing to come from it is that Sue manages to persuade the FBI to get involved. Calls driven by the article in the press are dying down, leaving Sue and Ned to regroup. Every time their landline rings, there's still a flash of hope, thinking this could be the call. The next one Sue takes, however, is one that will leave an already devastated family reeling. It's still less than a month since Amy vanished, and Sue is making breakfast for a few friends who are staying with them when the shrill ring of the phone cuts across the room. She jumps up, unable to stop the flutter of hope that comes with every call. The voice she hears is male, young and polite, almost businesslike, telling her he has news about Amy. The outlaws don't have her, the man says. This isn't a joke, but we'll kill her if we have to. The man gives Sue his demands, $30,000, which is more than twice the average annual family income at the time. He promises she can speak to Amy at 2.45 that afternoon, as long as no police or newspapers get involved. Sue agrees, unsure where she can get her hands on that kind of cash, but willing to do or say anything to get her daughter back. The man hangs up before she can ask anything else. Sue rings the phone company, but all they can tell her is the call came from a payphone. Next, she calls in the cavalry. Frank Rubino, Miami PD, and the FBI. A house full of law enforcement officers stare at the clock as it ticks past the allotted time of 2.45. When it does eventually ring, Sue answers immediately. The same eerily calm male voice greets her. When she asks for proof they have Amy, a female voice wails in the background. Sue is given instructions on how and when to make the ransom drop, with the man reiterating the threat to kill Amy if Sue tries to deviate in any way. She's to head to the lobby of the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach that Friday at 11 a.m. with 30,000 in small bills in a briefcase. Detectives trace the call to a Miami Beach phone booth, but nobody saw the mystery caller. The Billigs call in a favor from a bank manager friend who allows the police to mark up bills from their branch to use as ransom. The next day, Sue is running on adrenaline as she heads to the hotel carrying the money in a black briefcase. Accompanying her is a female detective, Ina Shepard, posing as Sue's neighbor. Over 40 plainclothes officers are stationed in and around the building. They don't have to wait long before a young man approaches. He's wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses. He looks and sounds nervous. I thought I told you to come alone, he says in an unusually high voice. And Sue suspects he's more boy than man. 
Sue introduces Detective Shepard as a neighbor who has driven her here today. The boy reaches for the case, saying Amy will be back at home by 6 p.m., but Sue isn't ready to hand it over just yet. She asks for more info on Amy, to prove he's seen her. What was she wearing? What jewelry does she have on? Her questions unsettle him. He claims he's a middleman, just there to pick up the cash. He says he'll make a call, but when he returns, the description he gives is one that anybody who'd seen one of Sue's flyers could reel off. Sue finds the resolve to stand up to him, refusing to hand over the money until she's certain he and his associates have Amy. Even when he reiterates the death threat, he tells Sue and Detective Shepard to follow him into the nearby elevator and punches the button for the fifth floor. When they get out, Sue does a double take. There's a second boy standing there, a mirror image of the one beside her. Even the voice is the same when he tells her to hand over the money. Sue doesn't move a muscle, but Detective Shepard has seen enough. She whips out a revolver from her purse, ordering them down on the ground. I'm so sorry, Sue, she says, but I think this has all been a cruel prank. The pair who claim to have Amy are indeed boys, 16-year-old twins Larry and Charles Glasser, who have never met Amy. They're from a well-off family and are described by the neighbors as good kids. The twins never explain what prompted their reckless act, and despite showing little remorse, are released back into their mother's care. The only thing they will say on the matter was that when Sue thought she had heard Amy's voice calling for her, it was in fact just Larry raising his voice a few octaves. Such a cruel trick would have crushed most parents' spirits. But not Sue Billig. She continues the search for her daughter with renewed determination. Sue redoubles her efforts, printing more flyers, recruiting more volunteers, and manning the constantly buzzing tip line. She even convinces pilots and flight attendants at the local airport to drop off flyers in every city they travel to. She still receives a steady stream of calls at home about Amy. Some are well-meaning people who have read about Sue's crusade to find her daughter. Not all are so friendly, though. One in particular will stay with Sue for years. The call comes in April 1974, one month after Amy's disappearance. And while Sue is used to dealing with unusual callers, this one takes her by surprise. Your daughter's dead, a man tells her in a southern drawl. He delivers this devastating information with a chilling matter-of-factness. She asks the caller how he knows this, but all she hears is breathing, then the click of a disconnected call. It's incredibly brief, but leaves Sue physically shaken. There's no way she could know at the time, but this is her first run-in with a man who will turn out to be one of the most twisted stalkers that America has ever known. She tries to put the disturbing call out of her mind and refocuses her efforts on making headway with the biker gang theory. A friend connects her with a lawyer named Bobby Franks, whose colleague represents members of the Pagans. Later that month, Franks shares with Sue that he's had a call from the president of the Pagan gang, a man known only as Satan. Franks tells her the biker claims to have seen Amy in Fort Lauderdale in the company of the rival outlaw gang, heading north in the wake of an eruption of violence in the biker world. 
three Hells Angels are found floating in a secluded quarry in Broward County, 40 miles to the north. A fresh wave of worry washes over Sue. What if Amy ends up being a casualty in one of these gang wars? Local police forces across the state do their best to question any bikers they come into contact with. But these are a group of men used to life on the move. Evading the authorities is second nature, and the rest of April is a disappointing series of dead ends and false sightings across the state. The search stretches on, and now it's over a year later. Even Sue's seemingly limitless energy is being tested. Sightings are one thing, but other than the camera, there hasn't been a shred of physical evidence. That, however, is about to change. On June 5th, 1975, the Billigs receive an unexpected visitor, an undercover treasury informant known only by the pseudonym Casey Lange. Lange tells Sue and Ned that she is part of an investigation into the outlaws and that she saw Amy with her own eyes in a bar in Fort Lauderdale. When Sue asks why she didn't try and rescue Amy, Lange tells her that Amy was with a big group of men and any move like that could have blown her cover. A fight had broken out and the gang were driven out of the bar at gunpoint, heading for their clubhouse in Kissimmee, just outside of Orlando. Lange offers to put Sue in touch with Orlando PD and one of their detectives calls five days later with a tip they've received. A clerk in a convenience store near an outlaw clubhouse claims to have seen a girl matching Amy's description. Sue has been burned by these sightings before and decides to take matters into her own hands. There's little left of the funds raised to find Amy, but Sue uses some of it to fly up to Orlando. She's met by a detective who takes her to the store to show pictures of Amy to the clerk. That's her, the clerk says when she sees the photos. Came in every Sunday for crackers and vegetable soup. She tells Sue that Amy used to come in with a huge brood of a biker called Creature, but that she hasn't seen her since the week before. Police have already told Sue that the biker clubhouse has been abandoned, but Sue insists on seeing it for herself. The place reeks of stale booze and cigarettes, and the floor is carpeted with pizza boxes and beer cans. Sue tries not to picture Amy living in such squalor as she makes her way from room to room, but she finds herself wiping back a tear. In one of the bedrooms, something catches her eye. A small compact mirror and hairbrush, complete with tufts of brown hair that look strikingly close to Amy's. She drops it into a plastic bag and takes it back to Miami, where she persuades police to test it against a sample of Amy's hair from home. The results come back after a few days, and against all odds, Sue has her first tangible link to Amy's whereabouts. The two samples are a match, but the Billig's excitement is short-lived. No more leads emerge on the whereabouts of the bikers who abandoned the place. Amy could be anywhere. The emotional roller coaster continues throughout the summer. Most weeks bring a new sighting, and each one is systematically ruled out or runs up against another dead end. The bikers either won't talk or leave town before they can be questioned. Sue's desperation to find Amy is taken advantage of yet again when in October 1975, a pair of former Dade County narcotics agents claim they have connections in the biker community. 
Sue was persuaded to part with $1,500 to cover their expenses. But after ignoring her for a month, the agents claimed to have spent all the money chasing leads, although Sue suspects they never lifted a finger. It's yet another blow to Sue and Ned who can't bring themselves to ignore any lead, no matter how much of a long shot it feels. The Billigs are being systematically ground down by the countless false leads and enlist the help of a therapist to help the depression that's setting in with each passing day. With all of this talk of Amy being moved around from place to place, one thing they can't understand is how she has never found a spare minute to sneak away and call. The therapist warns them it's not that straightforward. Amy might have developed Stockholm Syndrome, where people bond with their captors, growing to like or even fall in love with them. This prospect is hard for the Billigs to process, but Sue says she'd happily accept it if it meant Amy was alive. It's over a year and a half since Amy disappeared now, and the Billigs are forced to spend their second Thanksgiving as a family of three, not four. As bleak as it feels, Sue is only three days from receiving what could be one of the most important calls she'll ever take. It's November 30th, 1975, and the mood in the Billig house is a somber one. The phone rings a little before 10 a.m., and even now, almost 20 months after Amy disappeared, it still makes Sue's heartbeat quicken. She takes no chances, hitting a button to record the call on a tape recorder she keeps by the phone. The voice is male, rough and gravelly. Mrs. Billig, you don't know me, he says. I'm a pagan, just got out of jail, and saw you in the paper. Then he drops the bomb. Amy was my old lady for a while in Orlando. He tells her he lost track of Amy when he was behind bars but that the picture in the paper is definitely her. He tells Sue he was good to Amy, even goes as far as saying he loved her. Sue fights back tears as she begs him to meet her, telling him she's willing to pay him a reward, now up to $2,000, if he helps her get Amy back. He says he needs time to think, but takes just two hours to call back. They agree to meet at a gas station out on Route 27 that borders the Everglades. The Billigs pull up around 3 p.m., and it's not long before they hear the rumble of a Harley. The man riding it is huge. His tattooed arms and black leather vest are every inch the biker uniform. To Ned's horror, the man, who still hasn't told them his name, says he'll only talk to Sue if she comes for a ride on his bike. Ned tries to stop his wife, but Sue is willing to do whatever it takes and reassures him she'll be back soon. They accelerate out of the gas station and tear down the road at close to 100 miles an hour. Sue is too busy clinging on to work out how far they've gone before they turn off. When they do, it's onto a gravel road lined with wispy sawgrass. It opens out to reveal a battered-looking trailer, and Sue gets off and follows the man, nerves jangling, wondering exactly what she's walking into. He grabs a beer and settles into an old armchair. He's able to describe Amy to a T, but that could just be from photos in the press. She asks him for more, like what jewelry she had been wearing. The man laughs. He doesn't remember any rings or anything of that sort, but what he tells Sue next makes the hair on the back of her neck stand up. She had a thin two-inch appendix scar, 
way down to her waist. The man says, this is information that's never been made public. He says he'd be happy to help track Amy down on one condition, that Sue won't force her to go home if she doesn't want to. It'll be her choice, Sue says. We just want to know she's alive. He promises to ask around and get Sue a picture of Amy so she can see her daughter is all right. Then he downs his beer and takes Sue back to the diner. As the mysterious biker pulls out of the parking lot, Sue memorizes his plate number. Once home, she makes a call to Detective Ina Shepard, her companion during the investigation that led to the arrest of the Glasser twins. Shepard runs the plate number and calls back in a matter of minutes. She describes the biker from his DMV photo. It's the man Sue has just met to a T. His name? Paul Preston Branch, enforcer for the Pagans. A man who has already done time behind bars for murder. A man who was part of the hundred-strong wave of bikers that washed through Coconut Grove the day Amy was taken. But is Branch helping purely out of the goodness of his heart? Or is he doing it to stay close to the Billicks, controlling the information they receive and keeping them at arm's length from the secretive world of biker gangs? Next week on Deathbed Confessions. The search for Amy continues as the Billigs grow more desperate by the day to find their daughter, and Branch continues to offer hope. Bikers have a code, one that preserves order and disciplines those who cross a line and betray their biker brothers. It's possible that in helping the Billigs, Branch is potentially putting himself at risk. But is his offer of help genuine? Or does he have some ulterior motive for reaching out? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Rob Scrag, supervising editor Ben Bishop, sound designed by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.